Well, Karen Maines has written a modern-day parable called A Brawling Bride. Not bawling, but a brawling bride. In it, she says, down front stands the groom in a spotless tuxedo. He's handsome, smiling, full of anticipation. His shoes are shined, every hair is in place, and he anxiously looks down the aisle awaiting his bride. He says the wedding party is the same. All eyes are focused on the back door. The attendants are expecting the bride, and the magical moment finally arrives. The pipe organ reaches its stately crescendo, and the doors are opened, and as the bride enters the sanctuary, everybody gasps in horror. Because as they look at her, instead of a lovely woman dressed in elegant white that is smiling behind a lace veil, they notice that the bride is limping down the aisle. Her dress is soiled and torn. Her leg seems twisted. There are ugly cuts and bruises covering her bare arms. Her nose is bleeding and one eye is swollen shut. Maine's asked, doesn't this handsome groom deserve better than this? And then she closes with the clincher. Alas, his bride, the church, has been fighting again. You see, as you read the scriptures, it tells us that Jesus Christ is the bridegroom, and his bride is the church. Those of us who are believers make up the universal church. And as we've gone through the book of Philippians, what we've seen is that, that Paul has given us glimpses of our coming wedding day with Jesus Christ. Last time in Philippians 3.20, we saw that Paul said he was looking forward to heaven with eager expectation for the coming of Jesus Christ. And this week, as we go to Philippians chapter 4 and verse 5, he's going to tell us that the day is drawing near. When that day comes, this is how Ephesians 5.27 describes it. It says, Christ will present himself to the church in all her glory and that she should be found having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be found holy and blameless. Well, as we turn in our Bible today to Philippians chapter 4, what we're going to find is that things in the church at Philippi were not like this. Instead of being found holy and blameless, they were in danger of looking like that brawling bride because there was disunity, there was a fight going on within the church among some of the saints. Philippians 4, 1 through 5 tells us this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, so stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Euodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true comrade, I ask that you also help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are found in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. There are many times that I'll meet with a couple for marriage counseling, and, and when they come into my office, what I often will tell them as I listen to the struggles that are taking place in their, their home or their marriage, is, is I'll tell these individuals, I'll say, you know, the sign of a good marriage is not that there is an absence of problems. Because even in the best marriage, there are problems because we're all sinners. What I tell them is the sign of a good marriage is not that there's an absence of problems, rather it's how you deal with the problems, whether you're willing to deal with them in a godly manner. And as we look at what Paul is saying to the church at Philippi, he's not saying that this was a bad bunch of believers, that they were a bad church body because there was, there was an issue within it. 
You know, people will often tell me, Roger, I wish we were a New Testament church, and I say, which one? You know, do we want to be like the church at Corinth where there was all kinds of immorality and problems and sin? Do we want to be, I mean, Philippians, Philippi, this is a great church, and yet we find there's a fight going on among the believers there. And so what we find is they're not a bad church. Remember in chapter 1, Paul had said, I thank God for you. You're such a great group of folks. He said in this letter recently, I am so thankful for the support and the partnership that y'all have in the sharing of the gospel, how you've stood with me when so many others have, have abandoned me. As we look at what Paul says, he calls them my beloved brethren. He, he says, you're my joy and my crown. The Greek word that is used is stephanos. And, and this was a, not a crown so much as a king would wear. It was used of the wreath that a runner would receive. We see the Olympic Games where we put medals around the athletes' necks. Well, in the original Greek games, they would give them a crown that was a, a woven wreath. And this was called the stephanos. It was, it was the, the reward that showed this person had, had run well, that had, had won. And as Paul is thinking of these Christians, as he's thinking of heaven and what is coming and the rewards that he will receive as one who has faithfully run the race, he says, y'all are part of my reward. My investment in your life and the fruit that you've borne in your life has brought me not just joy in this life, but it's something that, that is a reward, a lasting thing for me. Now, as he speaks affectionately about them, we, we see he says, now there are some thorns in my crown because they're causing conflict in the church. He says in verse 2, I urge Euodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Now, I want you to remember that when we read the book of Philippians, you know what we're doing is we're reading a letter. Remember that? This is something that Paul penned under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. God directed his words. But this is a literal letter that was sent to the church in the city of Philippi. And when it was received by the, the pastor, the elders in that church, Sunday morning or probably Saturday as they gathered there in the synagogue or others, uh, they would have opened the, the scroll, this letter, and he would have begun to read it. So everybody is assembled to hear the words that the Apostle Paul has sent. Now imagine that you're sitting there in the church and there are these two women. Now one is named uh, Euodia. And, and her name means fragrance, and syntyche means a pleasant acquaintance. However, we find they're not living up to their names, are they? They're not a fragrant fragrance and a pleasant acquaintance. These two women are a growing cancer within the body that are threatening to destroy the unity of the congregation as people are probably being forced to pick sides. Are you with her or are you with me? There was argument, there was gossip, there were things that were happening. As, as you think about these women sitting there and this letter is being read, how would you feel if suddenly your name were shared with the congregation Sunday morning? And I had to sit up here and I say, you know, uh, Joe and John are, at fi are fighting each other again, and guys, this just needs to stop. This is what's happening. It's being read out in front of the congregation. I want you to think about your own life for a moment. And remember that those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, we call ourselves Christians. The word means a little Christ. We're like Jesus. And ask yourself, does your life really reflect Jesus Christ? Do you match the name that you bear? If Paul were writing to Wayside Chapel today and he were writing a letter about you, what would he say to our congregation? What would he say about you? What would I read this morning 
that God's Holy Spirit inspired Paul to say about you, one who knows your life and what you're like, not just within the doors of our church, but imagine Paul were out talking to the people who see you outside of the doors of Wayside, where you go to school, where you work. If you're on the base, he's, he's talking to the other soldiers or airmen or others that are around you. Maybe even the stranger on the street that sees how you act when you get cut off in traffic or the way that you respond to a server in a, in a restaurant. What would Paul say about you? Would you be embarrassed by your reputation if it were repeated from this pulpit? Now, if you think you might be, then it's time to say, you know, Roger, I need to make some changes in my life so that I look more like what Christ wants me to be like. I mean, think about these women as they sat there and their names are being read to the church. I imagine that just a few moments before when Paul in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, was talking about the, the danger of these false teachers coming into the church, they were probably giving an amen. You know, last week I was preaching at Maranatha, and there's a lot of call and response when you're there in an African-American church. You say, that, come preach it, bring it, you know. And, yeah, well, yeah, okay. <laughs> Now, see, that's what the Custers are doing. They're saying amen right now. But what if in a chapter I were to say, you know, Jim and Sharon, you guys are really struggling and fighting. We need to have a... Yeah. <laughs> well, there we go. I just got another appointment on my calendar. <clears throat> so what happens is these women were probably amening about the danger of these false teachers. And all of a sudden, Paul says, you know what? You are just as dangerous because you're spreading disunity in the pews. You're tearing apart the Christians. You're, you're taking us from fighting the foe, Satan, that is out there, and we're fighting among the family of God, and all the energy and resources and time and everything is now being devoted to this war within the walls. And so he warns these women that it needs to stop. Many of you know of General Dwight D. Eisenhower. He was a war hero and later President of the United States. And there's something that is still taught in the war colleges today called the Eisenhower Dictum. And General Eisenhower had a, a simple axiom, a saying that went like this. Do not let disintegration happen from within. That which you seek to protect is from without. Do not let disintegration happen from within. That which you seek to protect is from without. In other words, the enemy is out there. The foe is out there, not the family of God. We shouldn't be fighting among ourselves. Stuart Briscoe has written a book called Bound for Joy. And in it, he says, hands and feet usually get along well together, particularly if they belong to the same body. Hands have been known to punch teeth and teeth to bite hands, but rarely on the same body. But friends, that's what happens when Christians fight each other. They bite their own hands, they punch their own teeth. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 15 puts it this way. If you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. You see, these women were in danger of consuming one another as well as the church at large. The unity and the work of the church was being uh, put at risk because of these women. So Paul says, stop fighting with each other. Live in harmony. Now, notice as he does this, that what Paul does is he doesn't take sides. Do you see him taking one side or the other? No. He addresses the command the same way to both women. He says, stop it. 
What you're doing needs to stop. He doesn't point a finger and say, you know, Syntyche's right or Yoda's right. If you've ever looked at your finger when you pointed at somebody, you, you notice there are three that are pointing back at you, right? And so what Paul is saying is, I want you to examine your, your own heart, your own attitude. I want you to look at yourself in this situation. It's, it's not that we're ever to not disagree with somebody. There are times we need to take a stand for truth. There are times we need to confront something. But what we find is when we disagree with somebody, we don't have to be disagreeable. Now, another thing that is important when it comes to disagreeing is deciding what is really important, what is really worth fighting for. If you look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 1 here, Paul says, stand firm. He says, there are things to fight for. But what is it he says to do? He says, stand firm in the Lord. Your position, not your preference. Your position in Christ, the essentials. We are to stand for things that are important to God, not, not picking thing, fights over things that really fall into personal preferences. If Christians in churches would apply this principle, it would prevent a lot of problems that happen in churches. There are churches that have actually split over the color of the carpet in the sanctuary. Some wanted red because it was the blood of Jesus, and others wanted white because we've been washed. And there are literally churches that have, have blown apart because of the, the color of the carpet or the wall or some other minor issue that really had nothing to do with the essentials. You know, one of the things I love about going overseas is that, that when I go overseas and I teach in these seminaries or Bible colleges or pastors' institutes, they will come from all over. There, there are pastors that literally travel for days, and they will sit right next to some other pastor, some other layman, who, who doesn't have the same denomination as they do, that doesn't have the same background or beliefs in some of the, the preferences, those practices in a church. And I'll watch these brothers and sisters in Christ that are from various backgrounds come together and say, we're going to keep the main thing the main thing. Because so many of them are in places where there are so few true believers that what they say is, when we find another Christian, we pull together rather than pull apart. You know, sadly, we live in a country where it seems there is a church on every corner. And because of that, we as Christians have become consumers, haven't we? we? We've become to the point where if things are not just the way we want, we get in a fight over it. And we say, well, if, if this church isn't going to meet my need, that one will. Or, and, and we church hop around and we find things. You know, so many people who go to the churches here in town, I talk to other pastors in our community, and they'll say, you know, we have some of your people that are here on Sunday, and you have some of our people over there, and, and we all know they're God's people. They're not mine or yours. But we watch people move sometimes around churches. And, and some say, you know, I go, I go to Wayside on Sunday morning, and I go to Wednesday night over at Community Bible, and I'm at Oak Hills on the Tuesday morning study, and, and, and we've just turned into a buffet of believers where we go all around town. And we look for the things that are going to meet our needs. And that's okay at some levels. There are things other churches are doing really well. And we're all on the same team. So I don't worry about whether people are here or there. Because, you know, there are enough unsaved people in our city to fill every one of our churches a hundred times over. But we as Christians need to stop being consumers where we're, we're so focused on what we want that we forget what God wants. 
You see, when these women are fighting, have you noticed that God never tells us what the fight was over? You see, it wasn't important, was it? If it were a matter of doctrine or an essential issue, Paul is very good about God directing him through the Holy Spirit to write to us issues that need to be named and dealt with. But here, the issue is never brought up because it was over preference. It was, it was something that really didn't matter to God. So the guidance that God gives us here is that this stuff needs to stop. And he says you need to focus on your common ground in Christ. He says in verse 1, stand firm in the Lord. And again in verse 2, he says, live in harmony in the Lord. As, as you look at this, it's not their preference, but their position that they are told to stand firm in. As, as Paul is dealing with this problem, uh, the way he tells us to fix it, if you're using the King James Version of the Bible, it says, be of the same mind. The New International Version says, agree with one another. The Greek words here are literally frauno oto, frauno oto. And what that means is to, to think the same thing. Think the same thing. Now, don't confuse that with uniformity. Remember, we've talked about this in the past. Uniformity is a cookie-cutter mold. It's like when you see uh, a branch of the service all wearing the same uniform. Paul is not saying that we are to think alike. Rather, he says we are to think together. We are to think together, not alike. Notice that he says there is to be harmony. You know, when you have harmony, there's diversity. You, you have harmony, there is diversity. It's, it's like what we saw this morning. There were different singers with different parts. There were different instruments that were playing. They, there was not unity, I mean uniformity, in the sense that everybody was playing the same instrument, everybody was singing alto, or everybody. What we had was a mixture of parts. But we didn't have pandemonium up here, and the reason for that is because they were all working off the same sheet of music, and they were all under the direction of one conductor. And so what happened is you had a diversity that was together, and it brought out a full and rich harmony. And this is what God tells us as believers to do. He says, brothers and sisters in Christ, we have the same sheet of music. Every one of us has the word of God. And so this is our sheet of music, and we all have one conductor, which is Jesus Christ. And if we follow him, and if we focus on our position in Christ, it will eliminate the problems within the pews. When he uses this word frowno, it's the same word that we've seen twice before. It was back in Philippians 2.2. There Paul said, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. You see, he says, focus on your purpose, which is to share the good news of the gospel to go out of the doors of the church into the community, to your workplaces, to your homes, to go into the streets and share the good news of the gospel. Not to go out and fight over, well, we didn't sing the songs I wanted Sunday or the, I didn't like the color of the wall that they chose or this or that. What he says is, are you focused on what really matters? Are you out in the community sharing a message of unity and sharing who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us? Now, in terms of coming together, I want to give you something that may help you to understand how this works. 
You see, the world tells us the system that we operate under is like a straight line. Now, I've put me and my spouse up there. Uh, you can put your, your name where you see me, and you can put your spouse, or you can put the person you work with or whoever. It's, I'm just using, say, my wife and I for illustration here. And so if you had this straight line that was up there, what the world says is when there is disagreement, when there is conflict, how do we solve it? Well, what the world says is, let's just meet in the middle, right? They say, uh, you guys are at odds with each other. You both need to give a little ground. Now, if you're dealing with me and my wife and we're at odds over an issue, each one of us may assume I'm right and you're wrong, right? And so what we want is the other person to realize that and to come over to our side. But the world says, you know, that's probably not going to happen. And so what we need to do is meet in the middle. Now, let me just say this. There are times that we do need to give ground. We may actually be wrong. Did I just say that? You know, we may actually be wrong. But there are other times that we need to not even give a fraction of an inch. Because if God has defined the position, then I don't care what anybody else says, they are wrong. And they need to come to where God says we are to be. Remember, our position is in Christ. So if God says it, now be very careful, brothers and sisters, that you don't take your preference and make it, uh, uh, you know, saying this is God's principle or this is thus saith the Lord. No, here's the word of God. This is what God says. So going back to my wife and I, Say we're in a situation where we can't fully agree. Well, the world says the way you work it out is you just meet in the middle. Now, what happens if my wife says, no, I'm, I'm not coming all the way over? Well, do I need to go a little bit farther, a little bit farther? I mean, where do I stop? And you see, what happens in the world system is maybe you say, well, the last 5, 10, 15 times I gave more ground than my spouse, so now it's their time to give more ground, right? Right? This time, I'm not moving over because I get to win this one. Is this sounding familiar to anybody? You see, this is how the world says we solve conflict. This is what we do. But what God says is there is a better way to deal with this. Instead, what we are to do is to think of a triangle with God at the top. And what God says to us as believers is, brothers and sisters, instead of going through the broken system of the world where we're running back and forth along a line, keeping score, remember 1 Corinthians 13 says, love does not take account of a wrong suffered. It literally doesn't keep, it's an accounting term. God doesn't say keep score. When Peter asked, how many times do we forgive? He said, seven times. See, the Jewish law of the day said, if you forgive somebody three times, you've done it. Now, Peter said, I'm being really righteous. I'm doubling it and adding one. So he came to the Lord saying, seven times, Lord, thinking Jesus would go, wow, Peter, you're so great. And what did he say instead? <coughs> 70 times seven, Peter. And we're going, okay, that's 490. Oh, okay. So what we do is we keep trying. I'm at 468. I'm almost there. No, love does not take account of a wrong suffered. The point of that was it's so many times you can't remember it, so just give it up. So what God says is, if you will meet me, say my wife and I are at odds with each other over something. Now, I can do it the world's way and say, I have my rights. This is what I believe. So my wife Kim needs to meet me over here. But what does God say in his word, the sheet of music we work off of? 
He says in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Men, what did Jesus do for us? He loved us so much he went to the cross where he paid the penalty of death for our sins. He died. And what we're called to do is to die to ourselves, to love our wives that way. It tells us in 1 Peter 3, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding manner. Literally, according to knowledge is what it says. So again, what I have to do is say, I'm going to come over to her side, and I'm going to look at it from her position and say, okay, I understand how she feels. Now, I may say, well, she's wrong. No. Now, if she's really wrong, according to God's word, then yeah, you stand firm. But what God says is, Roger and the other men here, if you will move to where you need to be, if you will come to where I want you to be, guess what? It makes it a lot easier for your wife to move to where I want her to be. The model that God gives to us is if we will meet, not in the middle, but if we will meet where God wants us, then we still come together, don't we? But we come together according to God's formula, not our own. Now, wives, it works the same way for us as well, for you, because... Uh, it, it says that there in 1 Peter 3, 7, husbands live with your wives in an understanding manner, but the very first verse of 1 Peter 3 says this, in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Do you see what happens? Instead of trying to drag your husband over to your position, what God says is you move up to where he, he wants you to be. And then it will be easier for your husband to come to where God wants him to be. Now, I know some of you are looking at this and you're saying, now, wait a minute, Roger. What happens if I move to where I need to be and my spouse or that coworker or that other person doesn't come to where they need to be? I lose, don't I? Yeah, well, see, there you go with the world system again, right? Is it about winning or losing? No. It's about being where God wants us to be. Because guess what? If I move to where God wants me to be, do I lose? No. I win. Because no matter what happens, I end up where God wants me to be. Maturing, growing in my faith, being a godly husband, a better leader in my home, a better person in my company. And what God calls on us to do is to mature to the point where we understand this is the system. I want you to understand for a moment what we saw earlier. Remember in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, a sermon we saw previous to this one. If you've read Philippians 2, 5 through 11, you'll remember that that is what's called the great kenosis passage. And that's a big fancy word that described how God emptied himself. Remember this? It said, Jesus who was in heaven left his glory. He set aside, and we talked about, if you were not here, you can listen to that sermon and understand what it means for God to empty himself and we're told that the creator became a part of the creation. He humbled himself and he came down here to the earth. He took on flesh and blood, the limitations that we have while still being fully God. And he walked the earth and he ultimately served those who were here to the point of being the lowest servant, washing the disciples' feet. And then it says he went even lower as he went to the cross and he died on that cross, giving his, his life 
to be the payment for sin that I owed and you owed. And brothers and sisters, if God himself was willing to leave his glory in heaven to give us the example as we saw back then and are seeing again today of what we are to do, what he says to us is we are to humble ourselves. We are to be those who are willing to move to where God wants us to be, not the world system where we're fighting back and forth, trying to keep things even. You know, if you're always trying to get even, you never get ahead. Have you ever realized that? What God says is, if you will come to where I want you to be, and then the other person can meet me where I want them to be, and I bring you two together anyway. This is what God wants us to do. In Philippians 2, 3 through 4, we were told to regard the other person and their position as more important than yours. Do not look out for your own interest, but theirs, it says. Do you remember the illustration I used back in that sermon? I said we can go home and, and take a sheet of paper and write on the top, I have a right to. And then list out everything you have a right to. And you probably really do have a right to those things. But then as we saw God, who had a right to all these certain things, he said to us, I'm willing to empty myself. I'm willing to let those things go. And if you remember that illustration, I said, as you write out everything that you have a right to, what I want you to then do is this, to crumble it up. And instead of holding on to it like the world says, what God says is we are to take and we are to empty ourselves. We're to let those things go. And so maybe you legitimately can say, I have a right to fight over this. I have a right to this or that. I've lost the last 10. I'm going to win this one. I have a right to finally get to be the one who wins. And what God says is let it go. Don't meet in the middle, but meet me at the top, at the pinnacle, at the place where I want you to be as a maturing believer in, in Christ, to look more like Christ, to do what Christ did and willingly let some things go in your life and you can bring about the unity that is needed. Now, as we talk about coming together, there are times that that's, that's not possible, is it? Have you ever taken two magnets and put them on a table and started to push them toward each other? And if they're not flipped a certain way, what happens is these magnets get close to each other. They just push, push, push. The more you try to get closer, the more the other one goes away. And there's only two ways to bring that magnet together. One is if, if you will flip it over so you now change the, the connection. And as you flip it over, they'll come together, snap together. But sometimes one doesn't want to flip over. So what, another way to bring the two together is to drop a piece of metal in between. Have you ever done that? And then they... They snap together. And there are times that we are at odds with somebody, no matter how hard we try, they just keep moving away from us. And, and God tells us he understands that. In Romans 12, 18, it says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. What he says is, I understand there are times somebody will not let you be unified. And you need help. You need a piece of metal, uh, metal in the middle, so to speak, that will bring you two together. And as we look at our passage, God said, I'm going to drop a man in the middle by the name of Clement who's going to help these two women and bring them together. Look at verse 3 of Philippians 4. He says, Indeed, true comrade, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, 
and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. You see, if you're at a crossroads and you can't come together on your own, what God says is look for a mature man or woman, a counselor, another person out there who can be that metal in the middle, who will bring you two together, who can be that unifying factor that can help you guys understand the difference and who needs to maybe flip over or where things may have to uh, come together. Now, as you look for that counselor, I want to remind you, we can all find somebody who will say what we want to hear. You remember the story in the Old Testament when Solomon died and his son came to power and the leaders came and said, look, things are not good. You need to change things. And he said, I'll think about it. And he went out and who did he consult? All the young men that he grew up with. And his buddies all said what he wanted to hear. And the result was a civil war within Israel and the northern and southern tribes split. The nation was divided because this guy said, well, I talked to some people and they said what I said. And what God tells us is we need to find people who love us enough to tell us the truth. Proverbs 27, 6 tells us faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Now, what a wound is is, is, a, is a, something that hurts. It can cause damage. It can bleed. It can, it can cause pain. But notice that it says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Friends, if you're here today and you're one of these uh, men and women who says, Roger, I've got the spiritual gift of criticism, <laughs> and, and, and you feel a need to exercise it, that's actually not a spiritual gift, by the way. This isn't a, an invitation for you to be these drive-by bombers. I actually have a more... Uh, colorful term, I call them drive-by vomiters. Sorry about that. Where they spew and they feel better and you're left with the mess. And so what happens is, what God says is, I'm not soliciting the critics. I'm soliciting the friends. A friend is somebody who loves you enough to die for you. The scripture says uh, a faithful friend is even better than a brother because he'll die for you. And are you somebody who is truly a friend? A friend is somebody who is invested in the person and isn't just happy to share their opinion, but says, I'm happy to sit with you. I'm happy to go through this struggle with you. I'm happy to support you and be here with you in the good and the tough times. If you're truly a friend, then you have a right to share even the hard truths but don't be somebody who's one of these drive-by critics who says, well, this is what you do to fix it, and then you move on. If you're not going to be willing to invest in the individual, then you don't have a platform to speak into that person's life. Paul was one of those people who had an investment in this church and in these ladies. And because Paul was in prison and he couldn't be there to be the metal in the middle of these two magnets that needed to come together, he said, I'm going to call on others in the church who are invested in that church, who are invested in these women. And he starts by naming this godly leader. And he doesn't limit it just to that. He says, and to the fellow Christians who are in the, in the church. As, as he talks to these different individuals, he uses a word uh, to speak of the struggle. It's sunathaleo. Do you remember this word from Philippians 127? 
Sunatheleo, we saw, was a word that means to work together. It's where we get our English word athletics, if you look at the end there, athleo, athletics. And what he says is those who share in the struggle are part of the team. They're the ones who are on the field in the midst of battle that are getting bloodied and, and, and are playing and have skin in the game. And he says, for those of you who are a part of the team who are invested in this church, who are invested in these individuals, I want you in the, in the game with them. I want you pulling together like in that rugby scrum. I want you just to lock arms around each other and to get in there and share in what these women need to do. And you know, as we come together as a team, when we focus on the goals that we have, as we pull together, you know what you find? The issues that divide you suddenly diminish, don't they? When you realize it's all about getting the ball across that goal line, so to speak. If this is the goal we have as a team, you set aside your individual uh, issues and you say, how do we accomplish the greater goal, the team goal here? And this is what Paul is calling these women and others to do. He says, when we start with what we're together on, we'll find our list of things we think we need to break fellowship over diminishes. It gets smaller and smaller, and we can, we can push together. And here he says, for those of you who have partnered in the past for the cause of Christ, I want you to pull together again. You know, these are women who have been a part of the gospel, sharing in the struggle. They've gone out there and shared with others how Jesus died for them, how they could receive the forgiveness of God. And Paul says, have you forgotten that yourselves? He says, while you're pointing people that direction, he says, what does God have to say to you? You've been forgiven. And you're called on to forgive others as I've forgiven you, the scriptures say. And so what he says is, will you come back together on the main thing? In Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, this is what we're told as Christians. It says, and so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. There's a man by the name of Carl Windsor. He wrote a book called On This Day. And what this book was actually about is weddings uh, marriages that had gone 50 years or more. And so Carl went around and he, he interviewed these couples that had all passed their golden anniversaries. And he said, I, I want to know your secret. I'm writing a book and I want to share with the world what it is that, that is the secret to a long and lasting marriage. And one woman that he talked to, as he sat down with this, this sweet lady, he said, he said, what's the secret to the longevity and love in your marriage? And she said, oh, honey... On my, on my wedding day, I said, I'm going to make a list. I'm going to make a list of 10 things that I will forgive my husband for. And she said, over the, the 50 plus years we've been married, whenever my husband did one of those things, I just said, well, I'm going to forgive him. And, and Carl said, man, that is so amazing. You, so many years ago, knew your husband that well that you would know what were the, the top 10 things you needed to put on this list. He said, how, she, how did you do that? And she said, oh, honey, I never got around to making a list. She said, whenever he'd do something that made me hopping mad, I'd just say, well, lucky for him, it's on the list. 
Brothers and sisters, do you have a list? You see, we usually have a get-even list, don't we? We make a list of those people we need to get even with, that we need to seek revenge, that we need to pay back. And what God says is, you don't need a list. Tear it up. Throw it away. You know, that's good advice for all of us, isn't it? Not just in our marriages, but any relationship we have. And as we look at these women, whatever it is they were fighting over, Paul says, forgive each other, get over it, and get back to sharing the gospel. Get back to sharing the forgiveness that is needed. I think of the story of a, a man who took his son and some of his son's friends fishing. He loaded up the car. They had all the equipment. They were going to go for a long weekend fishing. They get to the campsite late Friday night. They pitch their tent. They, they kind of get everything ready, and it was beautiful weather. It wasn't real hot. It wasn't too warm. The water was, was just calm enough. It wasn't just crystal clear. still where, you know, the fish, it's not real great fishing. The water was just, everything was perfect. So the boys all get in their sleeping bags. They're all excited. They're going to get up early the next morning uh, to go fishing. It was supposed to be a wonderful weekend. Well, something happened unexpectedly. This cold front blew in. And it was, it, it was a, one of those Arctic type of things that shouldn't have come through. It dropped the temperature 40 degrees. Suddenly it went from a, a, a warm day to just, you know, really cold. In fact, as the front blew in, the, the water was just too choppy to even get out on. It started to drizzle. It was miserable. But the, the weather was supposed to clear, they thought. So the father said, look, we're just going to stay here in the tent. We're going to play some games. We're going to do things. And so everybody was in the tent. And they managed to, you know, have a pretty good time. You know, a couple of young boys out in, in a camp out. And that night, things got even worse. It started to rain. Torrential rains were falling. The next morning, everything was, was just as cold, and the rain was pouring down. There was no way they were going to be able to go out and fish. And the father said, well, we'll just stay here in the tent. We'll play some more games. We'll tell stories. We'll try to do things. But as the day went on, the, these kids were on each other's nerves or in this cramped space. They started, it just became miserable to the point where the father said, that's it. We're just going to pack up and go home. Because what he found is when fishermen don't fish, they fight. Fellow Christians, is that true of us? When we who are called to be fishermen, fishers of men, when we don't fish, we fight, don't we? Too many churches have become keepers of the aquarium where we look around and we say, we want to make this a very comfortable, happy place for me. So I don't like where you put that rock or that plant or, you know, there's a little algae growing on the glass. And, and we focus so much on the aquarium and we forget that we're called to be out there being fishers of men. And what God calls on us to do is to stand firm in Christ, in our position and our purpose. And when we are focused on the purpose of getting the gospel out, when we are doing that, we will find we pull together and we focus on those things. And as I share this sermon today, I just want to say with great thankfulness that I believe Wayside Chapel is in a very good place. This is not a church where there's a big fight going on within. If you're visiting today and you're thinking, oh my gosh, what's going on in this church? It's the Word of God. I'm on chapter 4, verse 1. <laughs> right now, Wayside is in a, in a very good place where we are unified. We're pulling together. And we're seeing people come to Christ just about every month in this service. Just two weeks ago, we had another person come to Christ here in the service. 
We're seeing people in the pews that are out there in the community sharing the gospel. We have this outreach in Colonial Hills Elementary School, and we also have a, a connected partnership in the apartment complex, and the Home Builders ABF was there in the Lantana apartments, and, and they were doing an outreach, and we saw several people come to Christ in the apartment communities, and then we have Bible studies that have been planted out of that. And this is a church that is pulling together for the purpose of the gospel, and we are impacting the community. But I want to remind each and every one of us as believers, we are called to be a fisher of men and women who are out in the world who don't yet know Jesus Christ. And God calls on you and your places where you work or where you go to school or on the streets to be those who are focused on that rather than fighting over the issues that don't matter. As you think about your life today, as Paul looked at what these Christians were doing where they were fighting over personal taste or traditions, it took them away from what God had called them to do. And so he had to tell them in verses 4 and 5, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. You see, Paul said not only is it creating disunity in the body and drawing you off purpose, but it was stealing joy from these Christians. And so he said, get your eyes back on what is really important. When he uses the word gentleness, it means forbearing. The, the full meaning of the word is a forbearing, non-retaliatory spirit. Involved in this is the willingness to yield one's personal rights to show consideration and gentleness to another. Now that's hard to do sometimes, isn't it? Especially when you notice he says, to all men. Not just the person in the pew next to you. Maybe you say, well... I guess I can get along with this brother or sister. But it says all men. It's hard to do sometimes. You know, when somebody burns us, we want to burn them back, don't we? But if you think about it, when you fight fire with fire, all you end up with is ashes. And what God says is, the Lord is near. He reminds these Christians, there is a day coming where Christ will return soon, and I want you to focus on the things that you need to do? Do we really want him to come back and find his bride fighting again when Christ returns? I want to close with this story about Charles Spurgeon. Many of you have heard of Charles H. Spurgeon. He was a famous pastor from the past. And one of his friends and fellow ministers was named Dr. Newman Hall. Now, most people have not heard of Newman Hall, but in his day, he was very well known because he had written a best-selling book called Come to Jesus. Now, after the book was published and it gained fame, there was another pastor who took issue and was a little bit jealous, so he wrote a scathing article about Newman and his work, and that article was published in the paper, whereas he ridiculed Hall. And Hall bore the criticism patiently for a while, but as the article gained popularity, today we'd say it went viral, uh, Hall finally had had enough. And so he sat down and he wrote a letter back in response, and it was full of retaliatory remarks. He was going to burn this guy. It outdid a lot of the things that, uh, the attacks that had been made against him. But before he mailed the letter, he showed it to Spurgeon, his friend, and he said, did I miss anything? Now, Spurgeon read the letter carefully a time or two. He handed it back to Hall, and he said, you know, uh, he deserved it all. He said, but I... There's just one thing that I would add to your letter. And Hall goes, okay, what is it? What did I miss? And he said, uh, underneath your signature, you ought to write the words, author of Come to Jesus. <laughs> now the two godly men looked at each other. And Hall took the letter and he tore it to shreds. 
As we end today, I want you to think about your life and ask yourself if there are any changes you need to make. As you think about that person you're after, your, your get-even list, have you written across the bottom your name with, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, forgiven and covered by the blood for all my sins? And as you do so, ask yourself if you're willing to show that same level of forgiveness to the others who are on your list. And it may be that then what happens is you take your piece of paper and you tear it up and you throw it away. Or you hit the delete button on that email you were going to send. Or you, you get rid of whatever it is you've been holding on to. It may be that what you need to do today is to make a move in your life. That instead of moving along that line like many of us have been doing in the world, we realize we need to get out of that broken system and we need to say, it's time for me to move to maturity, to climb to where Jesus wants me to be, to meet Christ at the top. And as I move to where I need to be, it will make a difference in the way I relate to others and it will make it easier for them to relate to me. Do you need to make a move? Now, maybe for someone here today, the first move you need to make is that very first step of faith where you've not yet come to Jesus Christ. And you realize today that you need him to be your savior, that you've heard he died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. And today what you need to do is to take that first step of faith where you say, Jesus, I'm coming to you. I'm turning from my sin and I'm turning to you and asking you to be my savior. I accept your death in my place. I want your great gift of grace in my life. Today I'm coming home. Thank you for that gift of eternal life. Friends, what do you need to do in your life today? What change do you need to make? I want you to ask yourself that question as we go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray, please. Dear God, we thank you for your great love for us. Love that was demonstrated in that you died for us while we were still sinners. Love that was shown in your willingness to go to the cross to take my place and that of everyone else here. Father, as those who have been forgiven, as those who have received your great gift of grace and new life, would you help us to be those who are willing to extend that same grace and love to others? To those who have hurt us, would we be like you, Jesus, who said as you hung on the cross, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Father, help us to be those who represent you well. Help us to be those who help others to see the way home through the way we live our life. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you have a need in your life, there are prayer leaders at the front who would love to pray with you. I'll be at the front as well. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.